Our second reading this day comes from Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter, beginning with the first verse. Let us continue listening now for a word from God. Now the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, and they saw some of Jesus' disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Mark explains, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? instead of eating their food with defiled hands. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, for as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, Jesus says, and are holding on to human traditions. Again, Jesus called to the crowd, saying, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils, Jesus says, come from inside and defile a person. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our sermon today is titled, A Matter of the Heart. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we pray that you might send your spirit into our midst now. That through its work, our hearts might be calmed. That you might open our minds, that you might open our souls to hearing a fresh word. From an old story. Indeed, O God, we pray that through your Spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. For you and you alone are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So there's this tool out there for classifying personalities, it's called the Enneagram. Anyone ever heard of the Enneagram here? E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Similar to the Myers-Briggs personality test, but instead of grouping people along lines of introvert and extrovert or judger and feeler, it instead groups people by numbers. Nine numbers, each representing a different particular personality. Among the nine are personalities defined as helper, Achiever, loyalist, challenger. 
I took the Enneagram several years ago and was not all that surprised to find that I am a nine on the Enneagram, which is defined as a peacemaker. There's a lot of pastors and clergy who fall into that personality trait of peacemaker, which basically means we like people to get along. We want people to feel together. We want people to not necessarily be in conflict. That's the interesting thing about the Enneagram is that it's not just what number your personality is, but it's almost what that personality means you don't like. One of the things that peacemakers don't like is conflict. Anytime there's an argument or conflict, my personality is one that sets my heart racing almost immediately. I can feel the heartbeat pick up inside of me. I was thinking about that this week because as I read these verses from Mark, you know what I noticed about myself? My heart started going. These verses from Mark are essentially a family argument unfolding on the pages of Scripture. The family, of course, being different belief systems within the Jewish faith. Jesus and his disciples are challenging a tradition that has been set for hundreds, if not thousands of years by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they spar. They have this verbal sparring over things like hand-washing and purity and defilement. It's a family argument, but if you ever had friends growing up, perhaps, who spoke a different language at home, and you'd go over and there would be an argument in the house but in the native tongue and you would have no idea what it is they were arguing about but you could tell there was a disagreement going on. That's a little bit what this story feels like for me. Those language, those words of hand washing and purity and especially defilement, I don't necessarily know how to translate those. I don't exactly know what they mean. I spent some time this week trying to parse through that, and I landed on one translation. If we were to translate the disagreement unfolding in these verses into one word, the word would be law. If you go back to Exodus and the story of Moses, before the tablets are handed down, God commands the Israelite people, the Jewish people, to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Now, through the years, different traditions within the Jewish faith rose up, and they interpreted that command different ways. For the Pharisees, they interpreted those rules as applying to everyone, even though there's nowhere in the Hebrew or Christian Bible that says you must wash your hands before a meal. The Pharisees took the rules that were written for priests that said they have to wash their hands before meals, and before going into the temple, and they extrapolated that, and they applied it to the whole Jewish people, believing that if everyone obeyed the rules that had been written for the priests, then all Jewish people, that all people would fall under the law of God, that they would all be made holy. And so in a very real sense in this story, when Jesus and his disciples are not washing their hands before eating. They are violating the law. 
They are violating the tradition of the elders. And I wonder to myself as I step into this family argument, why? Why not just wash your hands, Jesus? It's not that big a thing. Why pick a fight on this point? Of all things, why pick a fight with the Pharisees and the scribes over washing your hands? And then I thought again about that heartbeat. I thought about all the ways that this story makes my heart beat. And I wondered to myself if maybe Jesus, once those Pharisees and those scribes, if maybe Jesus wants us here today, to notice our hearts, to notice the ways that this story causes our own hearts to beat. There's that great line in the very heart of this passage where Jesus whips up those scriptures from Isaiah. He says to the crowd, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts, they are far from me. It makes me wonder if maybe the heart of the matter for Jesus when it comes to the law is that the law, first and foremost, is a matter of the heart. Now, you have to remember in the ancient world, there wasn't a whole lot of understanding about what was happening up here. Hair loss, they understood. I get that part. They didn't understand what was inside your head, though. They thought of their heart, not their brains, as being the very center of human life of human decision-making, of human will. And so we should note that while the Pharisees want to talk about law, Jesus, three times in these 23 verses, if we read them from start to finish, wants to talk about the heart. The Pharisees, they want to talk about ritual acts, and Jesus wants to talk about ethical behavior. The Pharisees want to talk about what we eat. And Jesus wants to talk about what we do. Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood fame has been in the news a good bit lately. Some of it, I think, has to do with the fact that there was a documentary released earlier this summer about Fred Rogers titled titled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I haven't seen the documentary yet, but I've heard what a powerful piece of film work it is. I hope maybe when it's released on a smaller screen, we'll have an opportunity here to watch and discuss as a church. Around the time that it was released, I read an opinion column by David Brooks of the New York Times, who was writing his weekly column on this documentary. David opened with this line. He said, Often people are moved to tears by sadness, but occasionally people are moved to tears by goodness. Brooks titled his column that week, The Loveliness of the Little Good. I love that. The Loveliness of the Little Good. He wrote about how Mr. Rogers, who, by the way, was an ordained Presbyterian minister in Pittsburgh, How Rogers fulfilled in many ways the heart of the law by teaching generations of children and adults how to love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound familiar? 
how to love your neighbor as yourself through acts of little goodness. How each week on his show, Rogers would explain to children ever so gently how no, you can't fall down the drain in your bathtub. How he would watch these real-world events unfolding in his newspaper and on his television screen, and he would come and talk to children about those events, talk to them about what assassination is following the death of Bobby Kennedy, sitting on camera at the height of civil rights, putting his feet into a little kiddie pool with the African-American police officer on his show, demonstrating the love of God that transcends race. Brooks didn't really use this language in his column, but as I read it and as I thought about my own experiences of Fred Rogers, it occurred to me that a little like Jesus, Mr. Rogers used each episode to talk about the heart, to talk about how we behave, about what we do. It makes me wonder if maybe Jesus picks a fight on this particular point of washing your hands because he wants to make clear that following him is not just about knowing all the rules. It's not just about knowing your Bible just good enough that you can decide who's in and who's out, who's clean and who's unclean, who's saved and who's unsaved, who's righteous and who's not. Instead, I wonder if maybe Jesus picks a fight on this point because he desires followers who can feel their own hearts. Yes, people who, of course, know the law, who practice the rituals, who go to the scriptures as those essential guides to faith, but ultimately people who understand that all of those things are meaningless if they do not stir something in our hearts that causes us to look up into the eyes of another. If it does not stir in us acts of mercy and compassion, if it does not call us to fulfill the heart of God's love, which is that greatest command, to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Maybe Jesus picks a fight here because what he really wants is followers who understand that the gospel is nothing if it does not move us to tears through its sheer goodness and then call us to go out and do likewise. If you've ever had that experience of sort of stumbling into another family's argument, you know that it can be an awfully awkward experience. But you know it can also be a moment to witness, to step into profound grace, to see real forgiveness, real forgiveness being offered from one to another, to see people reaching new understanding of those that they love most and yet they struggle the most with. 
I wonder if that's the opportunity we have here today to realize that the point of this passage is not about who's right and who's wrong, but rather to treat it as an invitation to step into that grace, to let our own hearts draw near, not further away, but nearer to God, to recognize the loveliness of the little good that so often follows us when we step into those moments. Fred Rogers once said that at the center of our faith is a loving heart. Friends, so too is the center of our faith today. May you feel your heart. May you feel the love of God beating in your own chest this day and always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.